Hey guys, welcome to VS Energy's Commissioning Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey, Nick Tilska, and the newest member of the podcast, Jim DePasquale. So in today's podcast, we will be discussing issues and items that should have been caught during the commissioning process. And before we get started with this episode, let's just have Jim introduce himself. Uh, I know if you guys tuned into our energy podcast, you've already heard this introduction and you know, met him through the podcast. But if you haven't, Jim, just give us a little bit of a background about yourself. Thank you, Clayton. I'm Jim DePasquale, a mechanical engineer. I've worked for companies large and small across the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic region. I've been self-employed since early 2018 and mostly focused in the areas of mechanical design, HVAC, plumbing, fire protection systems, as well as getting into energy and financial modeling um, and project feasibility studies. I had the pleasure of working with Mark and Clayton on some past projects, and I look forward to contributing where I can in this great podcast. Awesome, man. Well, we're glad to have you on. Obviously, during the Energy Podcast, it was great to have you, so we're excited to have you in the commissioning one as well. And I guess diving into it, so first of all, why are these these issues that we're going to discuss not caught? Is it the skill set of the commissioning agent? Um, do ethics play a role into this? Is there pressure from contractors or owners? Uh, do you have, you know, as a commissioning agent, too narrow of a focus? Sometimes you're really hyper-focused on, you know, the thing right in front of you, if that's an air handler or a chiller, you know, and you don't look at it systematically right away. So there, there could be things you miss that are just not right in front of you. Um, obviously, there's a lot of factors that play into this. And we're going to kind of identify some of these things that are not caught that are commonly not caught in the commissioning process or maybe not commonly caught in the commissioning process but you know do you guys what do you guys think what plays the biggest role into missing things during commissioning out of that handful of things well if you if you guys don't want to answer i'll I'll start this this uh answer and really it comes down to people being unwilling to say no the first thing that you mentioned is always a pressure from the owner. Owners typically pressure commissioning authorities to do a good job or do a thorough job. Now, I've been involved in other projects where they want a commissioning report that they can turn over to another entity like a utility or a regulatory body that says it's been commissioned and they want it in an abbreviated scope format and reduced cost and you just have to say no. But ASHRAE 2005 also recommends that the CA work directly for the owner and specifically not for the design authority or for the mechanical contractor. Why? Because it would be competing objectives of payment or principal. And many commissioning agents don't seem to understand the impact of trivial items. So let's be very clear. As a commissioning agent or commissioning authority, you have liability. If something goes south and sideways and damage or injury result and the problem makes its way into the legal proceedings, you're going to get a call and it probably won't be pleasant. If you're not motivated to to do a complete and excellent job in commissioning, then don't do it. Very well summed up, Mark. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, Can you, I'm sorry, but can you expand on your whole, the lack of vitamin N, the lack of saying no, you, you referring to the, the owner kind of setting. Well, you know, when, when, and we've been on projects where the owner has said, look, I just need to do 
this, this, and this, and you know, it's been done, you know, do, can you do a quick walkthrough in a day and without any functional testing? And the answer is no. And, and why is it? Because I don't want the call when something goes south. I don't want that call. Well, you commissioned it on this date. It has your signature on it and it didn't work the way it was intended to work. So, you know, that's one side of it. And the other side of it is there, there's always the money motivator. If a design entity and not to cast uh, engineering firms in a bad light, but when commissioning is required and the design entity says, well, we do commissioning and we can commission that there's a competing objective because they're, uh, we're consultants. All we get paid for is to tell the absolute truth. Here's the facts with a total disregard for any outside influences. These are the facts. Now, when you have the design authority commission their own work, there's a little bit of disincentive, maybe a lot of disincentive to necessarily cast the uh, design authority in a bad light or say there was an omission or there may be, there may be a modification or change required. So it really, in my mind, speaks to the, uh, well, at any rate, design authorities shouldn't be commissioning their own work. I can't disagree with you, but I feel like that happens a lot. Well, it does. <laughs> and that, you know, and that's maybe where some of the, you know, the question of, you know, pressure from contractors or owners, or I don't know, maybe it could even fall into like too narrow of a focus. So if the design entity is the is also you know the commissioning authority um does it turn on yes does it heat yes does it cool yes okay great we're done you know i agree um, yeah yeah and and, and, the, and the same thing happens when the commissioning agent works for the mechanical contractor or the mm -hmm. uh, general contractor the last thing in the project is get the commissioning done so we can get our retention you know, and it's all about finalize the report and get it submitted. And now, oh, I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, not to be devil's advocate, but <laughs> there's probably plenty of jobs where you can get, a, I mean, I, if you had to throw a percentage at it, I have no idea, but there's probably a high percentage of jobs where you can get away with that and have no issue ever. Okay. So let's draw an analogy. <laughs> I, I drive a lot. Okay. Yeah. I drive a lot. Probably, and I'll confess this sin right here and right now, probably 80% of my highway miles are in excess of the speed limit. <laughs> I choose to take that risk. I understand the risk. I understand the, I may get a ticket, but 99% of the time you don't. So as a contractor, you said, just get this commission and get it out the door. And hopefully nothing bad will happen because we didn't, check the fire alarm interlocks. We didn't test the free stats. We hopefully nothing bad happens, but if it does, it could be a bad day, much worse than a speeding ticket. No, I completely agree with that. Absolutely. Um, and I'm not, I'm not advocating for taking that route. Uh, just saying, yeah, there's probably a lot of things that should have been caught in commissioning that were never caught. And maybe they probably never will be caught, never will be caught. Right. And probably will never matter sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> I just, I'm just saying, I see why it, people do it and we'll why get it happens. To that part later, later in the podcast. 
<laughs> Mark, you're coming down on if you had to pick one, your your category is is mostly like conflict of interest then? I don't even know if it's conflict of interest. I mean, there is some conflict of interest, yes, but there's also the uh, minimalization or minimization of the requirement for a QA, QC process that basically assures the owner gets what they want uh, as compared to the OPR and the design documents. So does the system really work as it was designed or is it good enough? Yeah, I, I mean... That's a, you got to draw the line and decide, you know, as a commissioning agent or authority, we need to do it correctly and make sure it works as designed and not just fall in the good enough category. Cause that's where I think some, a lot of these issues probably we can discuss or will discuss will fall into is it was good enough. Well, and I think that's the trap a lot of people can fall into is like you were saying, you know, a lot of these things can go unnoticed mm -hmm. and. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but it's a, a modern thing. You know, everybody's really driven to kind of mass produce things at scale and the, yep. the quicker you work, the quicker you proceed on to the next thing. And I don't think there's inherently anything evil or bad about that in and of itself, but yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, you know, probably budget falls a lot into it too with these projects. I mean, not everybody's gonna pay for it. So, Jim, I didn't make you mad. Did I? Are, are you? Uh, are you going to chime in on this? Well, I mean, I I agree with um, everything you guys are saying. The big thing is, you know, I think there potentially is a clear conflict of interest if the commissioning authority is not a third party. There's just going to be whether you're if you're not a third party and you're under a mechanical contractor or the design team. You know, there's always going to be that subconscious bias and that background going on, you know, to where you're, you're making some of those quick decisions. And, and like Nick was saying, you know, we're, we're being pressed on, you know, budgets and time. And of course, you know, we're all professionals. We all like to think we act with the highest integrity and I'm sure we do, but there's just, you're, you're making so many decisions so quickly. Um, I, I think it's just, it, it simplifies things and eliminates a lot of potential problems and questions if it is done by a third party. Yeah, I agree, Jim. It's kind of tough to, uh, you know, when, when they're, I guess, holding your, your funds and pushing you to get off the project a little quicker and get on to the next project they yeah. want to give you and be a team partner and all that. I can see that being a big influence on kind of speeding things up and, maybe not being complete in uh, the assessment. And I think that's where I would come down on at least the things I've seen have been the, how did you put it, uh, Clayton, maybe too too narrow of a focus. Yeah. That sort of thing where the scope, especially in the, the retrofit work I do, right? A lot of people are focused on, obviously, here's the part that we're impacting. These parts belong to the customer and are pre-existing. And even our measurement and verification plan, we're going to, you know, draw a dotted line around this stuff. And this is what we're looking at. But when, you know, those strategies interact with existing systems, you cannot discount them. You know, you can't put a drive on a fan and just not worry about what else is going on there. Yeah. You can't implement boiler strategies and not consider, well, you know, what is this 
50 year old boiler system doing and how is mm-hmm. it going to respond to it? No, I don't disagree. And I think, you know, I don't want to, you know, there's a, there's a, obviously a difference. I think our minds go to like these more complicated systems, you know, new or retrofit that systematically have, there's a lot of ripple effects if something fails or isn't done correctly rather than, you know, a dozen package RTUs on a building or whatever. So yeah, you're right. That You know, just when we say, okay, it's got to be done by third party. And I'm not saying it doesn't if you have a bunch of RTU package RTUs, but the ramifications of uh, a missed piece in commissioning could potentially be much larger for obviously a more complex system. So uh, I don't know. It just seems like that's where everyone's minds fall on that spectrum. And with that being said, though, let's dive into some what what are some of these issues things that could have should have been caught in commissioning that weren't and you know we have a lot of years of experience here in this podcast group um starting with maybe you know air handlers as a system what do people see what 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 it's been missed i guess i can i'll rifle off my list here and we can kind of build off of that but obviously control loop tuning you know hot water valves chill water valves um mixed air control loops tuning is huge a lot of people probably can miss that in commissioning. Um, maybe something less commonly missed, but of more importance is safety interlocks wiring into the unit to shut it down if there's you know a free stat trips or a fire stat or anything like that. And then you can get down to some of those smaller details like labeling and, and wiring t- you know to specification, uh, sensing equipment not installed correctly or not installed in the correct locations controls to the sequence of operation you know maybe people say does it turn on does it heat does it cool but does it do it per the sequence of operation and then you could also get and i don't know i've never seen it personally in my life but i imagine you guys have but simultaneous heating and cooling in a system that obviously shouldn't happen um so i know that was kind of a you know ran through the list for air handlers but to build off of that what do you guys think what else have you seen that maybe should have been caught in commissioning for air handling systems? Well, I think the, you know, the first thing we always check in, in, in my mind where a, a significant amount of liability or risk is, is in the safety interlocks, not Absolutely. being properly. Yep. So when the hardwired safeties like smoke detector, high limit thermostat, freeze stat, or any other safeties that are wired to the fan system and potentially recirculating pumps, they need to be interlocked with the motor starter preceding the handoff auto switch. Meaning if you put a system in hand, the safety interlocks still need to be able to shut down the system. And uh, it's, it's very common to find the safeties wired only through the auto side of a handoff auto switch mm-hmm. and less common, but still happens where controls contractors or electrical contractors will take a safety device as an input to a DDC controller, which is a really the worst thing you can do with a safety, certainly not mm. uh, to code and against every control system manufacturers recommended best practice. Uh, and if you read the labels and the installation manuals, every single manufacturer will state in big bold letters this must be you know wired in series with the motor uh with the handoff auto switch and not to a interposing control device 
So, and we've seen all of those things and sometimes with some hor horrific ramifications. Yeah, that, that seems to be like the first thing my mind goes to when, you know, you go up to commission an air handler, put it in hand, hit the free stat. Let's get this out of the way first thing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not deal with that. Yeah, get the, you know, this is the top of my list for, it's got to be done right. Put it in hand, hit the, hit the free stat. What happens? Does everything shut down? Do your actuators well, go to the normal position? I mean, that to me is you know, one of the, probably the first thing that, like I said, comes to my right. mind. When, and then you can go into the control loop tuning and, you know, you okay, now one of my safety interlocks is obviously done correctly. And you can go look at more of the smaller details, but on my pyramid of um, importance, definitely up there. But it's easy to miss. Like you said, Mark, someone could just go and hit the free stat and the unit could shut down. But if it's in auto or, you know, whatever, oh, yeah, it's good. But we were just at a case. job where the during the fire alarm test, the air handling units didn't shut down. And we had to go and look at the wiring. And so it basically, you know, the there wasn't a scope of work and it was just the engineer directed the electrical contractor to interlock, interlock the uh, air handlers with the fire alarm system. So they did. And when the fire alarm system did not shut down the air handlers, we went and looked it over and uh, the fire alarm uh, contacts were wired in parallel to the uh, fan start signal. So if the fan was required to be started, either the hmm. uh, BMS or the fire alarm system would have the fan system running. If the fan was yeah. supposed to be off and the BMS uh, was calling for it to be off, the fire alarm would keep it on. And if the fire alarm tripped and the BMS was calling for, for it to be running, the fan would be on. And so this was, this was post-commissioning, by the post way. Post-commissioning, right. Yeah, so should have been gotten commissioning. <laughs> Fits perfectly in the discussion. What else do you guys see for air handling systems, you know, in your years of experience interacting with these? I mean, I know, like I said, the free stat's a big one for me, but what else? Well, I think um, we have such uh, high level tools now that really the historically poor control loop tuning typically was not identified by trend logs because the time interval on the trend logs was long, was, was yeah. large enough that you would see basically the root mean square of a control loop, not the actual control loop function. So when you start to parse data at a tighter interval, and we may look at data either real time or five minute intervals or even shorter, you there is a, a significant amount of poor control loop tuning out there. We see it in one case or another on almost every project. Yeah, well, I think this is where you kind of fall into the not on the commissioning end, but on the contractor end, like the good enough category too. Okay. It, you know, it opens, it tries to hit set point, does its thing. Great. You know, your RMS, the temperatures where it needs to be good enough. You know, who's going to see this? Who cares? Till Mark shows up, <laughs> pulls up the BMS, says, put it into, changes the set point, watches the control valve and says, this is trash. Well, and that's the thing. Sometimes it doesn't take much to kind of see that they're not working. So you do kind of question, how did this pass muster the first time? And, yeah, you know, I mean, obviously safety stuff is the first thing you want to think of on all these pieces of equipment. But 
you know, when we get into the controls loop, I mean, this week has been with a project, couple projects seeing supplier temperature, same stuff. You look at the data, it's hunting up and down throughout the day. It's supposed to be reset uh, based on outside air and zone temperature. And then when we look into the logic, we see that, and then we find out while well, they couldn't do that, it wasn't working right when they installed it. So they just revised the reset strategy, essentially flatten that curve or that line so much that, you know, over a 30 degree range of outside air temperature, they're not even planning on the discharge air temperature changing, which, you know, originally there was like a 10 degree uh, right. spread there. So nothing was happening with that. Uh, other things with, we talked about like packaged rooftop units and meant to come with, you know, enthalpy economizers, but mm-hmm. uh, didn't get that option when they arrived and nobody cares now put yeah. them up on the roof. And now we're just kind of finding these things out too. And then it's very evident to the people that commissioned the project and those just kind of in their documentation. But so that needs that feedback loop needs to come back around too when it doesn't meet the design because everything else on that project or that system was right except the supplier reset. And it just turns out that, well, there were savings planned for, you know, the reset, you know, and spread mm-hmm. out over a few dozen units and made a big impact. Oh, yeah. I mean, it definitely, definitely is a huge one. Yeah. You're, yeah, but comfort you're, didn't, didn't suffer anything like Yeah, that. you're so estimating savings and energy consumption. Everybody's yeah. happy, but, yeah, you know, why didn't it work? The, the economizer on package R2s, I think that's a great example, too. Because I got to imagine those are, that is probably like way up there on the rankings for things that are missed or, you know, not seen or not commissioned or whatever. Oh, all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, people. People inside don't care because this, it stays 72 or whatever, you know, year round. Life is good. But up there on the, at the RT, the package you know, unit, it's not doing what well, it's supposed I think, to. I think there's all kinds of uh, things, you know, especially with package units. We were just on a project and Jimmy and Nick, you can, you can chime in on this. So the units were, this was by, you know, one of the two largest rooftop unit manufacturers in the United States. So Units are built, they're small units, 10 tons. And then they go to, I had no idea it even existed, the custom shop, and they get a retrofit kit added to convert a constant volume RTU to variable volume. And that retrofit kit consisted of a static pressure sensor, an ECM motor, and uh, off it went to the site. So the static pressure sensor for the VAV system was installed. Who would hazard a guess? Well, we won't wait for that. It was installed in the fan housing. Yeah. In the fan housing. I've never seen such a thing. And then when you read the fine print of the installation manual, it says it may need to be relocated to two thirds of the way down the duct work. If the static pressure reading is unstable. And yeah, I think that's just how they ship it. <laughs> no, no. Well, yeah, that's it was my installed thought, you know? there. Yeah, it was installed there. Was it just taped in there and bubble wrapped? No, it was zip screwed right into the fan housing. <laughs> May need to be wow. relocated if you want it to work. If you want, it to, that's exactly <laughs> what I said. Yeah, that that's a big one, Mark. Um, the 
a lot of times like in these package units, the manufacturer will furnish these differential pressure sensors, you know, for field installation. But a lot of times they take shortcuts and install it, like you said, in the fan housing. I have to admit, I've never seen that, but I've seen them like in the same mechanical room. Uh, if it's a, you know, if it's a package air handling unit or it's just a, a convenient spot, you know, it's going to save them time and money. It's, it's, it's not necessarily the optimal spot or the um, spot that the design team had in mind, you know, when they were designing the system. Well, and that's what needs to be. And I think that sort of thing, like when it's shipped in there and it says, Hey, it may need to be relocated. That seems to be more of a scope oversight because when it gets to the site, let's say somebody sees this and they say, well, that's not in my scope mm-hmm. necessarily. And it's not a, you know, a good or bad thing. That's just how things get done. You know, there's scope and there's roles and responsibilities. So <laughs> should have been caught in commissioning. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's, that's, okay. Boy, that's going to be a good topic for but a podcast. Clayton. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in air handling units, and especially when you get in the VAV, and I think I may have brought this up recently, there was another project that, you know, all the boxes were commissioned and there was, you know, nice fancy certifications by the commissioning agent, but we weren't seeing any action back at the air handling unit. And we didn't understand why and, you know, thought we had points that weren't mapped correctly, but no, it just, and he was clear. He says, I commissioned the VAV boxes and that's it. And we wondered, well, how can you do that without looking back to the, the system it's supposed to influence, you know, and, and, yeah. You know, just too many questions were were there. And that came down to well, his scope was boundaried around the VAV boxes. But again, and I think maybe I'm going back to what Mark said. Maybe that's the role where you come in and go, no, I'm not gonna do that because <laughs> you know, that's kind of a half-assed job. Or fully a half-assed very job. Very true. <laughs> so I see a lot of the stuff on the controls end that just aren't really, you know, vetted out till it's too late and you know. Uh, like Mark was saying, months, you know, a year down the road. And that's unfortunate on so many levels. Well, you know, I think it falls into the category of it, it could have been missing commissioning or it wasn't commissioned and it's been a persisting problem. And you finally bring in the right entity to identify it and say, well, what the heck? This should have been cotton commissioning <laughs> way back many months ago. You know, someone that either wants to look, you know, past the, first layer or he's looking at it systematically and not just at whatever you're commissioning if it's just VAVs or you know whatever and I think that a lot of things can fall into that category no doubt no doubt so moving off of air handlers then do you guys have anything else you want to add to kind of that system for commissioning Uh, again it goes down to the safety side you know for me anyway yeah Um, yeah all the safeties are in there for a reason Um, to prevent either personal injury or loss of equipment. So we've seen low suction limit devices wired to the control system versus into the, into the starter or into the speed drive. And, you know, when you hear the ductwork start to creak and you look at the static pressure and you say, Holy crap, it's, you know, it's this low. And why isn't the unit shutting down? Oh yeah. It looks like we have a problem in the control system algorithm that's when you just you know push the stop button and say okay get the electrician out here let's rewire this um hmm. it's, it's just uh some of it is experience 
And some of it is, um, you know, a little bit of lack of attention to those details without a knowledge of the risk that uh, those devices hold if you put them in wrong. Yeah, I was going to say, just to add on to that point of the safeties, you know, I know this, the title of this episode is should have been con commissioning, but my role here at times is to play the bad guy of the A&E designer. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of this has to do in the design phase. Um, Those safeties, a lot of time, you'll see an overlap between like a mechanical engineer and an electrical engineer's responsibilities. And that might get lost in insulation a little bit and Mm -hmm. not be properly coordinated. And then you're totally relying on the contractor to be knowledgeable of the correct code and uh, method of installing these safeties. I think my, or, um, Mark, you said earlier, you've seen drawings on the HVAC drawings that just say wire to fire alarm system. You know, that, I think that's a good example of what does that actually mean, right? Like, and who, what, what contractor is actually going to do that? And it's just interesting seeing it from the design phase and how that could snowball when you get to commissioning to where a lot of these things, you know, yeah, should have been more clearly communicated during design and then definitely should have been caught during commissioning. That kind of blasphemy will get you lumped into the outlaw engineering category. Well, that, that's why I'm, that's why I say I'm, I'm pretending to be, uh, <laughs> I'm pretending to play that role just for, uh, this is a totally, uh, I'm acting out the role. I, oh, okay. Okay. I probably, <laughs> I was going to say, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I promise all my current and future clients, if there's any left, that I'm just <laughs> acting out a role here. <laughs> you got to be the devil's advocate sometimes, you know? That's right. That's right. Well, it is interesting then thinking about Jim, how some things are missed because they were never scoped, but I guess some things can be missed because they were over scoped. Like you were saying, like there was in different documents and kind of there were confusion over who's really supposed to be doing this part. Yeah, it's just uh, the the electrical and the mechanical documents and designs need to uh, be coordinated. There needs to be a handshake there um, just to make sure it's a complete and fully mm-hmm. um, accounted for. Expanding on that, even if it's accounted for, you know, identified to be installed in the correct location. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> Which I think is a big one for some of these safety devices and sensing devices like we talked about. I mean, some people have just no idea on the install side where the proper location to install it is. So, And, and so uh, now I uh, give the plug to ASHRAE 2005 and commissioning in general. So therein uh, shows a little bit of the value of having a commissioning authority engaged early on during the design review process to help facilitate that level of coordination, which is, it's, it's essential. It's like we, it's like we've, that's just like the recurring uh, theme of the commissioning podcast, right? (laughs) About every episode we come back to that. Right. It's important. It is important. Yeah, no, absolutely. Completely. I was just going to say, Mark, I know your favorite thing is automatic reset freeze stats. You love coming on and seeing those oh yeah (laughs) stick in the eye (laughs) yeah Alrighty. well we'll change switching gears a little bit i think we can kind of dive into the chilled water portion of this no pun intended but uh 
you know, talking about the chill water side, what are some common things that should have been caught in commissioning when you look at a chilled water system? Poss- valves installed backwards, um, sensing in, you know, the incorrect locations. I know, especially when you get to primary and secondary and crossovers and you got to put temperature sensors in the correct locations, sometimes that gets confusing or, you know, could be missed. Incorrect. Sometimes impossible. Yeah. Piping incorrect. I mean, that's maybe a stretch, but it, I know it happens. It happens. Yep. Um, pumping issues. If it's, again, I've, I've heard stories about some pump horror stories. Um, and then just coming into the, you know, how the chillers are staged or controlled, depending on, you know, what type of chiller there are, how many chillers there are, and so on and so forth. But expand on this one for me, guys. Mark, what's your number one? Uh, uh, so it, it kind of goes to uh, sensor locations is a big deal. Also, especially mm-hmm. when you have flow sensing, mm-hmm. there's oftentimes disregards for the number of uh, straight pipe lengths ahead and behind uh, flow meters, which, you know, if you put a flow meter in a bad location, you just wasted your money. You might as well not even done it. And, and I think um, there's often not enough attention paid to uh, the chiller interfaces and staging, uh, especially in multiple chiller scenarios where you're doing control via backnet or Modbus or some other mechanism to uh, indicate to the chillers, you know, how they should be loading uh, versus just the simple uh, package that's on the units. It needs to be, and I'll follow on to what Jim said, that needs to be really well spelled out by the design engineer uh, to facilitate that staging sequence so that you, know, you can communicate your thought process, whether it's equal loading or it's, um, if, they're, if the chillers aren't the same size, you may be able to do an optimal selection routine, but that needs to be very well spelled out in the sequence of operation. Otherwise, you have a big risk of you get what you get, and the commissioning agent really has no recourse in terms of trying to push the controls contractor to perform a sequence as specified. Yeah, I think that's a great point, too, is, that, you know, as a commissioning agent, you are kind of limited to the documentation at hand. So, um yeah, you got to be able to fall back on something to make make a change or make it correct. Now, for me, when I walk into a chilled water plant and I don't see the proper labels on oh, pipes, oh, I know it one. hasn't been commissioned properly. That's a huge one. You're right. Yeah. Well, it's kind of half in jest, but that is a that is a sign. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of look for in a, in a new installation, and you know all the things that Mark talked about. Absolutely, and I've seen these things too, and particularly with the. Uh, you know, with retrofit work, it's very tough, you know, to put a flow meter where it's really supposed to be and, and sensors get missed and old pipe runs aren't properly closed off. And, you know, you're looking at your primary and secondary and wondering what's going on. You don't have an automatic valve out there, so you can't tell what's going on. And then again, what is it that's going to save the day? But getting some some eyes out there in the field and touching stuff and seeing, Oh, this old pipe here, was cracked open or something a little bit. I wonder how that happened. So, but that's, I mean, the sensors are, are so critical to what's going on out there. And sometimes they're just often plain miss too. Mm-hmm. When it can be a, you know, kind of complicated system of pipes and pumps and whatnot, but labeling. Oh yeah. That's my pet peeve. Labeling. Yeah. 
One I did not have on the list. You're absolutely correct. Now, with air handling units, that's not such a big deal, I find, but I don't know, especially really old systems, spending a couple hours trying to figure out what's going on in a mechanical room, oh boiler gosh, plant. Yeah, yeah it makes, makes you feel pretty dumb. <laughs> well, and unfortunately, as much as I probably own 100 Sharpies, but when I see labeling done with a Sharpie, it, it, that'll send me into orbit. In fact, our, our specs basically disallow any use of permanent marker as a mark, as a labeling method. Well, I, yeah, I would totally agree with that. Oh yeah. For, like, for any scope but, type of war. Yeah, we see it. Mark specs are for stainless steel, 316. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Quarter inch <laughs> permanently welded to the pipe. <laughs> I guess, uh, Mark, Clayton, and Nick, I have a question for you guys. We've been kind of focused on sensors. Um, it's starting to be maybe like a theme of this podcast is one of the more common things we've seen. It's just one of those things that could be easily you know, misplaced um, out on the job site. But what are your thoughts on, and uh, you guys have experience with some of the sensorless pumps that are out there. Have you seen those in chilled water systems and the impacts on commissioning with those i have not i have and i think uh, um uh there are people that do it better and people that you know not so not so well um see them work really well and seeing them work not so well and there's a couple of manufacturers that uh i think are, are pretty nice actually mm-hmm. now explain a little bit sensorless what do you mean by that so there, there's some in, well, it's starting to become more more common um, being offered by more and more manufacturers where you have a, a pump with a motor mounted VFT and mm-hmm. on that VFT, they'll have uh, a, con- a controller that has the pump curve on it and it's able to read um, motor current. And you, when you commission it and you, then the tab guys go in there, they set like a system uh, head and control head. And that way the, the pump has a really good idea of what the differential pressure is, you know, out on the system. You're never going to get that exact reading. If you need a precise differential pressure reading at a precise point in the system, you know, you might not get it, but with this, mm-hmm with these sensorless systems, you know, especially in retrofits kind of eliminates the need for placing a sensor, a differential pressure sensor anyway. Right. And, um, you know, it's just funny. I've, I've seen those on the job where they're using those, but maybe the a DP sensor is still shown on a, you know, a typical control diagram that might've been copied in from another job. <laughs> and, you know, there's a DP sensor out that's not plugged into anything. It's just installed, but not wired. <laughs> they don't really need it. No, I think they're good, especially as you said for retrofits. Yeah, yeah. No, that would definitely make sense in a retrofit situation. Yeah, yeah I just think that's uh, you know, it's somewhat new, and it might be a little bit different from the typical, um, you know, tab and commissioning workflow, where you know they got to make sure that they've got actually gone into that drive and made sure it's set up correctly for, for the job. So like, if you were commissioning that, would you, would you try, if you physically could, you, maybe you can't depending on what's out there in the piping configuration, and everything, but would you verify the loop DP? Well, it, 
I, I don't think uh, the need for balancing valves and ports goes away. Uh, mm -hmm. So certainly you need to verify the D, DP, but yeah, 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 you're right. I, I don't think that there needs to be the per permanent in situ uh, differential pressure. Yeah, that one's interesting, guys. I don't really have a lot of experience with it, but uh, I'm against them. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, they, they do sound, I mean, there's a lot of different questions that come to mind, but this isn't. It's a, like anything else, though, Nick. It's not a cure for every uh, problem, but uh, I've seen them put in and work pretty well. Hmm. Small, I'll do some reading on this, but I'm just curious if these could be like a chiller plant. Are we talking. I have horses. No, bigger. Really? Yeah. I've uh, had up to 300 horsepower. No kidding. Yeah, the, you know, the drive is I as mean, tall as a person. And yeah, it's uh, sense, you know, completely sensorless. Everything's being run from the drive. And it fully modulates and would have the same response if uh, you had a differential pressure down two thirds down the line. Well, if you have it set up correctly on the on the right pipe network, um, yeah, if it's a, you know, if you're in an industrial process and you need absolute tight control on your DP far, you know, at the end of the line, then maybe not the right application. But, you know, if you're doing HVAC controls, yeah, yeah, I think in most applications for comfort cooling, chilled water plants, boiler plants, it probably works fine. Well, and I think you're touching upon why my initial reaction was I don't like it. Because <laughs> it sounds like something that, and I think you you said it, Jim, where you still have to do your homework and setting these things up. It's not just take it out of the box, slap it on the wall, off you go. And, you know, I mean, that's one of the things, you know, and, and VFDs cover all, you know, these major systems, ventilation and chilled water and hot water, whatever. But I just feel so bad for the VFD. It was such a, such a great technological advancement. And they used to be so expensive and they worked good. And then, you know, then they just sold them to anybody that had money and they threw them everywhere they wanted yeah. to, you know, and I guess this would be a thing that should be caught in commissioning, but you know, you have somebody that like on the energy side that says, you know, we're going to put these drives on whatever, and they're going to modulate whatever, and they're going to be able to turn down to 30% or 40%. And there's really no, consideration of okay well there's a physical system and some physics that need to be overcome for this thing to push your flow and get past whatever the system resistance is and in commissioning if they're in vfds i think are one of the most at least again in my experience poorly commissioned devices out there right they're no more than a startup from a manufacturer most times that say Hey, we turn a dial and this is what we saw and that's it, but no response with the system. And so with these sensorless things, I would still think there had to be knowledge of the piping layout and your frictional losses and all that. No, absolutely. And that's, that's kind of why I, I brought it up is it could be overlooked if a contractor or commissioning agents not familiar with them, that that is something you need to, it is something you want to check. You want to get into that drive and make sure that's actually, you know, the control head's been set, that someone's actually adjusted the settings on the pump, you know, for the job that it wasn't just installed, turned on and relying on the factory settings to pump the system. That's definitely something we want to catch in commissioning. 
Yeah, and doesn't obviate the need for balancing, like I think Mark had said too. And yeah, balancing like, yeah would be, be a huge part for those. I wondered Definitely. where you were going there, Nick. I thought you were going to talk about going back to inlet guide vanes and pneumatic operators. The good old days. <laughs> well, I mean, after the coming surge in absorption, cooling, <laughs> going back to. <laughs> oh, inlet guide vanes. I don't know. Those, yes. pumps, th those pumps, Jim, now that I really start to think about it and we talk about it, those are really intriguing. Well, I don't know. And they work well. Yeah. So, like, it, it does its, like, own speed control to it maintain does. yeah and you don't have to like what how do you maybe you don't look at like the control loop then and say like how fast does it respond and whatever I, well, is that stuff you can adjust i mean well i mean typically that you're bringing all the data points back in anyway so you can look at the control loop and during the setup you have the ability to change those parameters and yeah right and right change them so mm -hmm. you you can absolutely look at the uh, you know what's the pump speed doing and as Jim said if you put a downstream DP on especially an industrial plant you can understand is it stable is it not stable so you're essentially looking at the control loop inside the inside the pump controller and they work yeah I suppose they they really thrive in the in the correct situation they do and then other times it's just maybe you don't need it. You're probably paying a lot of premium for a pump that you don't need or the technology that you don't need or whatever. But yeah, that's really, those are intriguing. Hmm. I think the same thing. It seems like just yesterday I was hearing about magnetically levitated chillers. <laughs> now this, All this technology next? going on. <laughs> Crazy. I'm going to stay focused on this podcast. I'm not going to go off the rails. <laughs> Should have been caught in commissioning. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, let's, let's keep moving forward then. Talk about some hot water systems, which can we, obviously, can we, you know, can we lump oh, this go together ahead, into hot water and steam or is steam separate? We can lump it together, Mark, if you have some things you want to add, you know, hot water slash steam. Again, I have a, you call it a small list, but to, a, something to me is, you know, you got your, maybe if it's a retrofit situation, you're not using condensing boilers and you have your three-way valves and those maybe the control loop on that isn't correct or it's it's really jumping up and down and it's hunting big issue um i don't know big issue is is relative um you can go to reset schedules i know we talked about that with the air handlers as well and nick brought that up pumping issues piping issues valve issues what else you guys want to add to that you know should have been caught in commissioning or expand on it well i think you always have to go back to the safety systems as well. Yeah, you know, safety, that uh, definitely a huge one for that. Yeah. Uh, uh, steam systems, even more so. Um, Very dangerous. Well, they yeah. can be. Uh, it, you know, we've done a number of boiler max studies, which is, uh, I, I don't know if you guys do that, uh, minimum acceptable control technology required by the EPA. So any boiler that emits uh, more than 10 tons of a single toxic, annually or over 25 tons total or any commercial boiler burning liquid fuel more than 48 hours a year is required to have a boiler max study and then have it updated every five years and for us especially working on big boilers the first thing we test you know are um, drum level controls feed water flow control all the things that would be part of the um, either intrinsic or extrinsic safeties of the systems 
uh, to make sure they're safe to operate before we even get into how are the actual combustion controls happening, how's the, the uh, combustion tuning happening, because the, the possibility of you know something going south will end up with a mechanical failure and possible um, you know life safety issues. So what happens if it's it, it's a controls retrofit and the existing boiler stays though? What do you do then? Well, you have to make sure that wherever you tie in with the existing existing controls, you're tying in at a point where all the existing safeties remain. And when you do that controls retrofit, you need to go back and test those existing safeties because the, the you know the laws of liability. Basically, the last person that touched it owned it. Makes sense to me. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's how the laws of liability actually work. <laughs> in our current environment, it is. Nick, if you, if you commission, if you're the commissioning agent on a job where, hey, there's a there's a problem of any size down the road. Uh, okay, the feed water flow controller goes south, and you did a, a, a boiler match study. And you say we tested, you know, the feed water uh, flow measuring device, and it worked. And the feed water pump interlocks worked. And then for whatever reason, those devices fail. You're going to get a call. I mean, that's just the that's the nature of litigation. Yeah, but like, what if, you know, again, I'm going to go back to like the control system retrofit, and like you you had no prior relevance to the boiler like all you care about is am i getting hot water from the boiler and is the control system doing what it's doing as a commissioning agent like you would go back and put a put the boiler itself under a microscope and look at it make sure all that's working too i don't know necessarily a microscope but you definitely need to test the high pressure cutoff if it's a steam boiler drum level uh you know low uh, drum level a cutoff, low steam drum cutoff. Mm -hmm. You test those and it's easy to do. Right. Um, you know, 20 minutes of testing prevent a whole lot of angst down the road. What do you, what does Nick and Jim think? Agree? I, I no, I agree with what Mark's saying. Definitely. I mean, yeah, the first, I mean, safety, liability, yeah. paramount. Mm -hmm. More the things I see are more in lines with, like I said, I walk into a boiler room. I don't see a label. I'm done. <laughs> Turn right around. <laughs> wow. No, but it's the same thing. Like even insulation, uh, you know, a lot of that you see missing. Oh, that's got to be, that's a big on. one too. Yeah. I mean, and I do believe, and maybe you guys will get into some when we get into the more of the tantalizing stories, but I think like most of the really catastrophic, and I could be wrong, boiler accidents historically have something to do with the air in the room you know, the pressurization, right? Have you heard of those type of horror stories? Maybe some of them go back to the 50s and 60s, but they're not bringing in enough combustion air because your mechanical room has been just hodgepodged over the years. And, you know, there's just... Yeah, I think you're getting into uh, boilers that um, they take their combustion air from the boiler room. And if you don't have enough... If you don't have a makeup air system or enough louver um, to bring in that outdoor air, I think that's what you're. you're yeah, yeah, yeah. And sufficient outside yeah. is not covered with you know leaves and chicken wire and all that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and that that system, even if it is, uh, you know, if the boiler's taking air from the room, a lot of times you'll see 
motorized dampers to a louver. Sometimes, you know, they're just open all the time, but a lot of times you'll see uh two position damper, uh motorized yeah. damper, you know, it's supposed to be, those are supposed to be open or otherwise you're going to, those, you know, depending on the size of the boilers, they could draw a lot of air and draw that room very negative, And then you're going to have all kinds of issues. Yeah. I mean, basically when people get cold, they disconnect those things. I can't yep. tell you how many boiler rooms I've been in where, you know, the crank arm is just dangling there, whether it's electric or pneumatic <laughs> and uh, the dampers are closed. Yep. For a while, I thought that's how they were all supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, and one I ran into a lot, it seemed years ago, was the outside air reset, you know, mm -hmm. on the hot water supply. And especially when you're mating that with an old uh, system and there's different bypasses to protect uh, the boiler. And I seem to recall a lot of times when those two systems were fighting each other and the loop would just get colder and colder. You know, as one was, as we were trying to reset out the hot water supply based on outside air, the bypass valve was almost counteracting that. And then so everything would work well after startup for a while, but then, you know, they would get called back saying the building's cold and we can't heat it at all. And it didn't seem mm -hmm. to make any sense, but then it was kind of all the outside air reset part was commissioned, but they isolated everything else to do that. So when you open it up back up and have a fully functioning system, oh. it doesn't all play together nice. And that's mm -hmm. you know, one of those boundary things. Interesting. Yeah. There's a lot to it. Absolutely. I'm trying I think I don't know what I, if you guys agree. I think we could probably move towards some horror stories if there are any to be shared for should have been caught in commissioning. Obviously a lot of these you could call them seemingly simple mistakes, overlooks, issues can cause some catastrophic results. And I know Mark alluded, we all alluded to that throughout this whole podcast, but any specifics worth talking about? Oh, there have been some gems. I think Nick heard about the one uh, up in Boston where a uh, multi-story building, I think the total height was 14 stories, but on the seventh floor on a Christmas Eve, the uh, outside perfect air, timing. It, yeah, uh, the outside air damper remained. The unit went off on freeze. Outside air damper remained open, and the coil froze. Had an automatic makeup water system on it. Water went down seven stories outside of the building and inside the building. Uh, cost several million dollars worth of damage and uh we were hired as the subject matter expert and on detailed investigation found out that the free stat was wired to the controller none of it had been tested and the commissioning agent ended up eating a significant portion of the damages so i mean simple it could have been avoided <laughs> I mean, yeah yeah no absolutely commissioning yep no question. should have been caught in commissioning yeah no question but you i mean that's a mistake you make you could hit the free stat and the unit could shut down and you could say life is good but right obviously it's not right you got put the put the unit in hand and then hit the free stat. yeah so so somebody put it in hand and then it was running and it, and it continued to run yeah damn maintenance people well no there were functions on christmas eve so it wasn't necessarily the you know they shouldn't have done it 
should, right. You know, you could, you should have been able to do it. Yeah. But, no, no, no. I agree with that. Yeah. I agree with yeah. that completely. And there, there, there was a whole um, plethora of items that happened immediately following that. You know, there was a, the control system apparently had a catastrophic failure. The computer that had all the trend logs on it was mysteriously replaced and a new one. Oh. I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> yeah. you know, courtroom yeah. drama all the way from start to finish, but yeah, yeah. you know, really took some digging, but it, it was interesting. Well, and that's, that's one example I know I heard from you many years ago now, yeah. but it's, it sticks with you as a commissioning oh. agent to me. Like, this is why we do this. And it needs to be right. And maybe one of the reasons why the first thing I go look at is, you know, the safety circuit on a free stat for a coil, especially up here in, you know, the north. Obviously, that's where they're right. you need it. So, yeah, and the, the fire stat is obviously important and all the other static pressure and all that. But, yeah, like the free stat is just the first thing. I just want to go. I just want to hit it. I'm just ready to go. Go hit yeah, my, trip yeah, my free and, stat. And even here in Pittsburgh and in upstate New York, you hear – Oh, such and such schools closed down. There's a, a boiler issue and the classroom flooded. Well, it's not the boiler issue that the classroom's flooded. It right. Was unit ventilator coils that froze. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Ken, that just things, yeah, can can totally be prevented. Right. And I know, you know, well, does uh, Nick or Jim have anything they want to add to this before I keep running? I think my favorite story occurred early in my career during uh, a retro commissioning uh, to where we were at a large college campus in the Rochester area, retro commissioning air systems. And we powered down one of the air handlers that, you know, it was a built up AHU that had to be over, if I remember, it was over 50 years old, just piecemeal together over the years. And we powered it down in the, the sides of the air handler fell into the coil piping. It was being held together by the negative oh pressure <laughs> of the fan. When you power it back up, it sucks back together. And it's just amazing it to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Wow. <laughs> wow, it's right. Jeez. So I don't know if that really counts as a horror story. It's just a story I like telling. That is, you know, that's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would be a perfect video to have. I know. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, I think it's long gone. Yeah, it's, sure. New units in there now, but yeah. <laughs> well, I think when we're talking about the safety aspects too, it's you know it's it's important. I guess realize the genesis of even the word commissioning. Right, it came about in uh, nautical terms. Right, shipbuilding. Mm-hmm. They would commission a boat before it even got wet to make sure it was completely seaworthy. And why did they do that? Well, because once you get on in the water, you know, you have a problem. It could be life threatening. Mm -hmm. It could be very dangerous. It could, you know, the the whole operation could be lost. So, and when you're, when you're talking about things like this, I mean, anytime these building systems we're dealing with, you know, electricity, fire and pressure, you know, constantly in very dynamic ways through buildings. So, uh, yeah, safety should be, maybe I've gotten a little bit more respect for these aspects of it. Cause I don't really see that side of it so much. Uh, it's more on the impacts of controls and the savings. Piece, right. But, and, and thankfully, you know, these accidents and all these things have come a long way. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Yeah. I mean, I remember reading years ago about like a boiler accident in Massachusetts or something, turn of the century, uh, very different than the safety controls and material and quality of workmanship was very different, but like 58 people died, oh, yeah. you know, in a shoe factory or something. And there's a lot of these. So uh, I don't know. They don't mean to bring the whole show down. No, no it's, it's, I don't think it's not <laughs> though. Safety first. And, you know, especially with aging infrastructure, you know, um, I'm aware of one plant, large industrial facility had an outdoor compressed air storage tank, big, so probably 20 feet high, but it was put in so many years ago. I mean, it was riveted construction. So what would that make it the twenties maybe? Mm. And, uh, that thing, uh, blew up and it, oh, it's a massive bomb. Yeah. It looked like an IED went off. You could put a Volkswagen yeah. in it. I mean, a, it, it was just unbelievable. Wow. So, Everybody, all of us, especially in the business, I mean, keep your wits about you and be aware of, you know, stored energy is a yep. huge issue, especially with the compressed air and steam systems, mm -hmm. you know, that you see a lot of stored energy safety plans and you need to be aware of uh, the stored energy and steam and compressed air systems. Yeah, it's a good way to think of it. Totally. Stored energy, it's a lot of uh, volatility, a lot of potential. Right. Well, I think on Nick and Mark, you guys, I think pretty well summed up the, the, the reason why, and this whole conversation about should have been caught in commission, you know, there's a, you're, well, you're it, dealing with some pretty big forces if you think about it. And even the, uh, the, you know, horror stories of commissioning, you know, I have numerous horror stories of failed performance contracts that the commissioning authority could have helped to uh, you know, prevent the thing from going off the rails immediately, uh, if not during construction, immediately after construction. Mm -hmm. And that lack of thorough commissioning either prevented the schedules from being confirmed, the airflow volumes being confirmed and the VAV conversions, all, you know, all those kinds of things, even completion of the work scope by some of the subcontractors. So, you know, commissioning especially in the in the performance contracting arena is essential yep serious business yeah no i agree yeah, completely funny. yeah any other horror stories you want to add to this episode or talk about um oh i, got, I have a horror story here's a classic so I, this will be interesting nick might have heard it so a, a few years ago we were at a plastics injection molding plant in uh, nebraska and mid-august so we walk around the central plant. It, it was uh, energy audit. So it's mid-August. We walk around the central plant first, and the boilers are firing, chillers are running, and uh, the the plant manager, the, the facilities manager, I think he's actually a VP of facilities, told me it was because they were in dehumidification and that plastic is hygroscopic. They need to keep the humidity down. They really have trouble doing it, but you know it, it gets them close. I said, okay. So then they had a total of um, 26 air handlers that were installed in the facility, each one about 25, 30,000 CFM. Started to look at the air handlers and um, all the heating coils were installed before the chilled water. There was no reheat. So the heating coils were wide open and the chilled water coils were also wide open. They said, you need to turn off the heating coils. And I said, why? I said, well, let's go look at the psych chart. And basically you're adding so much sensible heat. All the cooling coils are doing is getting to, you know, there's very little actual dehumidification going on. Yeah. And the 
heating coils need to be after the chill water coils. Yeah, we, we did these in, in phases. And the first time we did it, the contractor said the coils came in wrong, but then we wanted them all to be the same. So we did them all the same. Oh. Yeah. So as soon as they turned off the boilers, the relative humidity in the plant went down and their energy consumption of gas during the oh my gosh, summer yeah. went to zero. Could have been wow. caught in commissioning. Yeah. Should have been caught in commissioning, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big difference between a preheat and a reheat yes. oil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, preheat, not used for dehumidification. Wow. I like it. With that being said, guys, I think we'll wrap this up. We we hit our time limit. Thank you guys for joining the discussion about should have been caught in commissioning. You had a lot to add to this. And for our listeners, stay tuned. Our next discussion in commissioning is one size doesn't fit all. And that's kind of geared towards the commissioning approach. Obviously, you can't just copy and paste your commissioning plan from job to job. Um, they're all unique. So one size definitely does not fit all. And for more information on us, be sure to check out our websites, www.vsenergy.us, www.appliedfacilitiescience.com, and www.depasquale-eng.com. So thank you very much. Have a great day, guys.